0: Hey everybody, I promised you yesterday that I wasn't going to beat you over the head with a lot of 9-11 stuff today, right? But you got to admit it, it was a pivot point, not just for America, but for each of us. On today's show, we'll have lots of milestones and pivot points, and we'll be talking about all of the impact that those times in our lives have right here on The Matt Townsend Show.
1: Good afternoon, I'm Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. On the 11th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, New York City residents held their usual respectful service at Ground Zero. Peter Teague. Milano. The four-hour
2: reading of the victims' names is familiar. It was slightly different this year, as public figures did not take part. Elva Baxter, who lost her brother-in-law, says there's something comforting in the public nature of
1: the
3: grief every year at Ground Zero.
4: It's not just your loved one, but the sharing of, of all the stories that of, with people. That, that's also... A, it's, it's huge. About
3: 1,000 people attended the ritual, a smaller group than in previous years. But this came a year after the memorial opened, a year which saw more than 4 million visitors. Warren Levinson, New York.
1: Democratic leaders are taking aim at the Speaker of the House for his lack of confidence in Congress's ability to avoid going over the so-called fiscal
4: cliff. Saying he prefers to see the glass as half full rather than half empty, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid doesn't share Speaker John Boehner's lack of confidence in Congress's ability to strike an agreement.
2: I'm confident that we will reach some kind of an arrangement.
4: Reid suggested the Tea Party will be weaker after the November elections and so Republicans will be more willing to compromise. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, meanwhile, says the Speaker's lack of determination to reach an agreement is, in her words due to his party's intransigence and partisan obstructionism. Jerry Baudelainter, Capitol Hill.
1: This kind of back-and-forth in Congress is part of the reason that rating service Moody's is once again warning that the U.S. could have its credit rating downgraded.
4: Moody says the U.S. credit rating will likely be cut if lawmakers don't find a way to avoid the double hit of end-of-the-year tax hikes and budget cuts. And Speaker John Boehner says there are no guarantees that negotiations will prevent the government from going over the so-called fiscal cliff. I'm not confident at all. Boehner noted the GOP-controlled House has already acted and it's now up to the Senate. As for where the president is on all this? Absent without leave. Serious talks on resolving the matter aren't expected until after the November elections. Jerry Bodlander Capitol Hill.
1: The job market has been struggling to recover for years. But just how
2: weak is it? The Labor Department says employers posted fewer jobs in July compared to June. Counting nearly 13 million people out of work in July and more than 3.7 million job openings, there were three and a half people for every open position. That's to say nothing of the people actually applying. This past Friday, the government reported the economy added just 96,000 jobs in August. That was well below the previous month. And disappointing analysts had been looking for more. Mark Hamrick, Washington.
1: You're listening to BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. I'm Sam McCall.
0: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Matt Townsend, your life coach, your relationship coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can every weekday on this program to help you and your loved ones grow healthier, happier lives. And our goal, of course, is to to just give you a leg up so that you can figure out how to make it through this crazy thing we call life. Welcome to the program, everybody, as we uh, are just... Celebrating, I guess, remembering 9/11 and uh, the the incredible lessons we learned yesterday. Our entire show was about the lessons that uh, you took from 9/11. On today's show, we want to take it in a little bit different direction. Uh, not so much about 9/11, but it's interesting as you listen to the, the, um, the celebrations, the memorials that are out there, uh, just the, the remembrance as of we ha- that, that people are having of those days, of those times. Um, it's interesting to see what some of the participants are saying. You just heard on that news break there, one of the participants just say simply that there's something really healthy for the family members to have on an annual basis, kind of the sharing of the stories and uh the these pivot moments the and, and so that we can go back and just kind of vent out some of those some of those moments now, to me, there is power in that there 's something very interesting about understanding our history and uh, I, I, it 's just fascinating to me as we go through where were you on nine eleven and you ask everybody we put that up on a Facebook page, and um, everybody has a story, everybody has an experience it it became a rite of passage it became this uh milestone part of their lives and then if if you ask them other ones you know they'll usually give you other answers like the challenger disaster um kennedy uh the sh- uh, when kennedy was shot um Walter Cronkite coming on the television to say that he had died, that uh, President Kennedy had died, just these pivotal moments in life. And so as you think about yours, uh, today we're going to be bringing on an expert, who an anthropologist, who understands the importance of these rites of passage. Um, There is power in this idea that through life, each one of us goes through just certain symbolic moments – a uh, few of them that come to, to come to mind, a lot of them, interestingly, are just like, you know, when we come of age, uh, it's the bar mitzvah, it's the bat mitzvah, it's the debutante ball, your confirmation, your quinceañera, uh, the first time you uh, were legally able to go partake in alcohol, your first driver's license. Remember when you got your official identity card, you took on an identity that was legal, your first haircut. How many times did you take your kids uh, for their first haircut and you took a bag because you got to save the hair to put it in their little book, and you took your camera and you made a big event of it? That first haircut, such a symbolic moment. And then later in life, you'd give anything for a haircut. And uh, then all of a sudden, all you've got to remember is your first haircut. Um, Just certain things, religious ceremonies, your confirmation, your baptism. Uh, Worldwide, there's just a lot of different um, rights and, and um, traditions that people go through. So, on the show today, we're going to be talking about the importance of these traditions and the impact that they have on us. Now, among all of the rites of passage that we talk about on the show today, one of the biggest, probably for you and I know for me, was the day when a little piece of paper
2: said that we could leave, legally drive a car. Remember the day when you first got your driver's license? Where's the first place you drove? For me, oh, I was so proud. I drove over and picked up my dad from the barber shop. And if I were to mark five key turning points in my life, driver's license, easily one of the most important ones. Do you think it would be for you, too? Because you know that feeling when you first set free on the streets and freeways to, yeah, run errands for mom. It's liberating. And it meant I became good friends with a 24-year-old Primer Gray, Chevy Nova, two-door police package, 5.7 V8 with a broken distributor that had no working mechanical advance. Now, that car mumbo-jumbo doesn't mean anything to you. Just imagine a Clydesdale with a bum leg, and then the other three working legs are strapped to roller skates that have flat tires. In essence, tons of power, but no great way to actually translate that power into speed. Today, it was my first car. I didn't have anything to compare it to, so I thought it was great. And I had an FM stereo radio. not that the stereo part mattered, because I only managed to make one of the speakers work. But still, it was great. Driving around on a hot summer afternoon, listening to quarter-of-a-century-old rock in a a quarter-of-a-century-old car. Feeling for the first time in my life like I was an adult. The 260 AC up full blast. 260, meaning two windows at 60 miles an hour. Oh, and I was feeling so cool. He'd pull into the mini-mart and say, I'm gonna buy a soda. And then speeding out of the gas station parking lot, sipping that soda, not noticing the concrete island that the vacuums were on, and catapulting over it completely at 30 miles an hour. That rusty old leaf spring suspension, taking a licking, they don't make cars like that anymore. It was that old car I drove to school the day of the 9-11 attacks. For someone of emerging adulthood, September eleventh, two 2001 was kind of a rite of passage in its own right because my view of the world changed so much that day. The single radio speaker gave me most of the news as I drove home from school. Human nature, and we responded with the best of America. It's where I heard the president's speech. And in the weeks and months after the attacks, I don't know, there was something comforting about being behind the wheel of that huge old car. I didn't know if I was going to have to go fight a war. I didn't know if suicide bombings were coming to America, like the news pundits were saying. But that big V8 engine, I just felt like I could conquer any enemy or obstacle with that car. And that, I don't think, was unique to me. Because that's my story. It's different from yours because of when I turned 16 versus when you turned 16. But there's very good likelihood that the school of learning to drive the streets was equally effective at teaching you as it was me. Because, you know, you learn the value of rules the first time you see another driver blast through a red light and almost hit you. You learn the value of safety the first time you don't notice the traffic stopped and have to lock up the brakes on the freeway. You learn the value of life the first time you narrowly avoid an accident or, or maybe you walk away from a rollover or a spin-out. So as far as ceremonial rites of passage go, no, learning to drive isn't one of those. But as far as an incidental rite of passage, I think you might agree it's pretty big. At least it was for me.
0: Excellent work by Rob Sanders, who's still driving that V8, <laughs> running people off the road. Uh, it really is powerful when you think about just something as simple as a license for me—the rite of passage that I, which was the moment I knew, oh, I had two of them that I was a man. One was the first time I held a girl's hand doing the snowball at the skate park, at the skate, what's it called, classic skating. They'd hit the lights, they'd turn that bright, shiny light on. Ah, oh, that was heaven. And you know what was neat about uh, the ritual of the skating rink is that um, you, you could only go left because all the skates had been trained left. So you didn't even have to steer. You just had to propel. The skates. So that was a total rite of passage. I think that happened about sixth grade. Right then I knew I was nearing a man, uh, but a man that wore skates and Lee jeans with patches on my knees. And uh, the other rite of passage, which is a no-brainer, also probably happened around the same time, was when I completed my first Big Mac. And my first Big Mac actual com- combo meal. And this was pre-combo meal. A lot of these youngins around uh, BYU here, they didn't know that years ago you had to come up with your own combo meal. You didn't just have a number to throw out there. You had to figure out what would go really well with a Big Mac. So I'd always throw, fr- throw fries with it. I'm pretty sure I invented the first combo meal. And then I tried a large beverage. And when I, did, when I downed all of it, I knew I was a man. So, uh, rites of passage. What were the ones you've been going through? Uh, Obviously, 9-11, I think, is going to go down in history as a moment of maturity for all of us. It will stand as a a major rite of passage. But today on the show, we're going to be bringing in Dr. David Crandall a professor of anthropology at Brigham Young University. He's going to teach us the the power of rites of passage and just what they mean, how they help us, how they connect us. Again, if you think back to the connection of 9-11 and the fact that you went through that rite of passage, I guess, that moment— in time, that milestone, as we all went through it together, I think it did bring us together. It kind of brought us all into a fellowship of some sort. So we'll be talking to him about that, but more, even more importantly, maybe, just the day-to-day rites of passage um, that that we all kind of go through, the ceremonial and maybe just the incidental as well. So stick with us, folks, right here on The Matt Townsend Show. We will be back with Dr. Crandall, professor of anthropology, right here on The Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 1. 143 BYU Radio.
2: Sirius XM 143
4: BYU Radio.
5: What's cooking in solar cell
4: production? This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future.
5: Solar cell makers put their products through some pretty tough torture tests to make sure their silicon wafers hold up during the stress of assembly and installation. The toughest test? Baking the wafers at 900 degrees Celsius, then cooling them to reduce impurities, strengthen electrical junctions, optimize crystal formation, and catch defects early. A new kind of furnace for these tests has been developed by the Department of Energy and National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and it's the hottest idea in the industry. Called the Optical Cavity Furnace, it uses high-intensity light trapped inside ceramic reflectors instead of traditional heating methods. OCF puts all its heat into the wafers instead of the air around them, and it doesn't need complicated cooling systems to keep from melting itself. The OCF uses less than half as much power to do the same job better. A result of the Department of Energy's SunShot Initiative, the savings it brings to cell production will help toward the goal of lowering solar power costs to six cents a kilowatt by the end of the decade. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy
4: Ravino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA. Visit us online at innovationnow.us.
0: This'll take a while.
3: Sometimes it's better to take things slow. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Join Dean Duncan weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show, and uh, we are talking about rites of passage and just how, as humans, we go through these kind of traditional stages of life and the the import of these moments, these ceremonial moments, the impact that that this rite of passage can have on our lives, of these traditions. We're bringing it up today just obviously because of 9-11, but I, I really just wanted us to learn about the power of these kind of, I call it pivot points in our lives. And we brought on Dr. David Crandall. Uh, Dr. Crandall is a BYU professor, professor of anthropology. He's been here for 17 years. He uh, has his master's and PhD from Oxford University. And one of the most interesting things about him is he's lived, he continues to live with a tribe in Africa, and he's been studying them for 22 years now. So he goes about every two or three years. We'll have him talk about that. He's also the author of The Place of Stunted Ironwood Trees. Uh, that's a book that he's written. He's writing a new book as well. So uh, Dr. Crandall, thank you so much for being here.
3: My pleasure to be here.
0: And uh, so as somebody that is an expert, I guess, in, in the rites or the, the rites and passages of life, what, what's the big deal with them? Why do they matter? What happens in this just milestone moment that is so critical or is it critical to our progress, to our growth, to our development?
3: I suppose there are different kinds of rites of passage. The things that you've been discussing about 9-11, they would not be described as a classic rite of passage, but an event that um, is a fairly serious moment for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And those will vary, I suppose, from one person to to the next. But a classic rite of passage is actually something – it's a social rite of passage – it's something that societies themselves create to move people from one place in life to another, usually coinciding with puberty, then manhood and womanhood, which is connected with marriage, mm-hmm. and then often a rite of uh, transition into becoming older people. So it's kind of a transition point. It's That's a, it's right.
0: a, so the rites of passage, I guess, usually take place
3: at a moment of transition in their lives – that's right. And they're usually a formal ceremony. Some of the ceremonies can be weeks or even months long. And the primary purpose of the ceremony is not just to inaugurate people in, but to teach them what it is to be a man, what it is hmm. to be a woman, the responsibilities that are uh, entailed in all of that. And because in many societies that are preliterate, it's not the kind of information that can be read anywhere else. Right. Yeah. Here's your book. Read up on being a man.
0: <laughs> so it's more experience. It's experiential.
3: Well, it is experiential. Um, I'll give you an example of this, this is uh, what I think is a very interesting rite of passage among the Bemba of Zambia. The, the girls have to undergo a very prolonged rite of passage from let us say twelve or thirteen that right about that age when mm-hmm. they're reaching puberty, and they're being initiated into womanhood and the the Bembo live in a marginal habitat they are well, they they don't cultivate the land they spread the seed, and often they are hungry they don 't have enough food to eat and so the realities of their lives are often portrayed in this rite of passage, and I think of. The very ending rite or uh, uh, ritual, the the girls' puberty rite is about 18 months long. Hmm. And they have a large uh, hut, which is called the womb, and then they have a birth canal. And at the beginning, the girls crawl into this canal, back into their mother's wombs. Back into their, uh, their building, their That's hut. That's right. That's yeah. right. And then 18 months later... They will emerge. They stay in the hut for 18 Oh, They have lots of other things they do, but that becomes their home during that time. And then they are reborn. But the very last thing that a girl sees before she leaves that that womb Uh and goes through the birth canal is a statue, a woman holding three or four babies slung on her back. Her eyes are bulging. She's ugly as anything. And it is supposed to teach them a very important thing. In their way of life and given their environment, a woman should not have a baby more than every two to two and a half years because she needs to breastfeed yeah. a baby for two years. If not and another baby comes along, she has to make the choice. Am I going to be able to supply nutrition to my newborn or to my toddler? And she can't do it for both. And there is no actual solution to the problem but the figurine is this vivid image yeah. of what that dilemma is like. And so they look at that and supposedly it makes a visual image in their minds. Wow. And then hopefully as they mature and then they reproduce and they're uh-huh. married and all of that, that idea, that essential female dilemma – is at the forefront. Isn't
0: that fascinating? Is that the is that the tribe you stay with? You go no, and research. No, I guess that's where the phrase "get to your womb, go back to your womb," was invented. Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing thing. Go. It really is. It, it, it's more. It's like a. It's like a play. It's like they're being enculturated into
3: concepts, life concepts. They're just being taught. That's right. It is a period of teaching. And nobody, of course, thinks that anybody at the age of 13, 14, 15 is really going to learn it, but at least those teachings are being presented, and the people who participated in this kind of a rite of passage may also participate in different ways in rites of passage that will be performed the next year or the year after Mm -hmm. that, so that hopefully over time the ideas they were taught will actually have some meaning for them.
0: And then I guess this creates continuity for the for the community. Is that what this is about is creating a context and continuity of paradigms.
3: Yes, for and groups. it is also about teaching young people that males have their own right uh, and not, not just the females, but what it is to be a man. Mm. Because we don't just wake up one day and I'm Dun, a man. There no, go. It's a, it takes a long <laughs> yeah. time to be a man. It takes a long time to behave properly as a woman. Yeah. And so the teachings begin in this setting and then hopefully they are reinforced over the years until they get married and then not so helpless as – we might think
0: is it um, I guess so the, the these rites are uh, ingrained I guess culturally societally is that how, how yes. this is done well oh, that could be through religion through culture through generally it's, or like uh, ethnic areas
3: or generally it's through ceremonies where the most important teachings that a society has are dispensed hmm. uh, they may be talked about in small circles here and there but generally the teaching of the most important knowledge is dispensed in a ritual setting.
0: That's interesting. Is there what? What's the impact of the rituals being lost? Have, is there research on that?
3: Well, if they are lost, a lot of these peoples are let us say acclimating to a new way of living. So, mm-hmm. sort of in the in the middle of this. But I would think that for many, especially Africans in Southern Africa. People are replacing traditional ideas with Christian ideas. Mm. So they may not have quite the dramatic rites of passage, but as that knowledge is lost, it is being replaced by something else. I can't say that that's true of all places in the world where native knowledge is being lost. Right. But it's not necessarily being replaced. Exactly. It may or may not be
0: replaced. Is there a – because it seems like that's, a, that's an interesting way to destabilize
3: a group is to just take their rights. Oh, sure. If they're no longer performing these things and dispensing the knowledge, what becomes of them? Well, they come into our kind of culture. They yeah. get into different sorts of music, drugs, yeah. whatever else happens to be available and little by little, they're lost.
0: It's it's uh it's really a, it, it's something you hardly think about, but it, it, the impact is is huge. Give us a, a taste of it in in the United States. So, like, what's a what's one of the most common rituals or rites that are that you would kind of compare to the one that you just discussed to, from Africa?
3: I would say one that at least when I was in school, everyone participated, in. I'm not sure if we do this anymore. But let's say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Yeah. We memorize this thing. It Probably doesn't mean a whole lot, even though teachers may go over it. But over the course of the what ten or twelve years we spend in public schools, it might mean something. Right. And we're being socialized into thinking a particular way about our own society and our world. And if I am pledging my allegiance to this, what does that actually mean? Yeah. Well, and then on nine
0: eleven. Then you know the United States has this huge event and then I just noticed afterward the pledge meant something or standing for the flag again meant sure. something. Is that just re-energizing those paradigms, those scripts? Is that what that's doing?
3: It does do that. I think maybe before nine eleven the uh, the key event was probably the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Yeah, yeah. We still have Pearl Harbor Day though I don't know right. that anyone Remembers, commemorates yeah. it. But right. that was – nearly as big a deal back then as nine eleven is now. And of yeah. course, it creates uh, an environment for thinking about patriotism mm-hmm. and love of country and these sorts of things. Love that. See,
0: it really – I think it's such a deep idea, this idea of of rights. And what, when, what I'd like to do is take a break, Dr. Crandall. We'll be back and talk more maybe about – get into depth about really what's the importance of it in today's day and age and maybe what are some of the things that – I mean should we take a more active role as parents in creating kind of some more rituals, some more traditions that and maybe instilling instilling some of those temp, uh, those teaching moments into our children. So we'll be back with Dr. David Crandall, professor of anthropology at Brigham Young University. We're talking about uh, the rites of passage. We're talking about traditions, rituals. I'm probably using all the words interchangeably, which he never would. But uh, we will be back after this break and hear more from him right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
6: Sirius XM 143. BYU Radio. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with the latest news and research in pivotal societal issues.
4: There has got to be a way that we reduce our dependency upon Middle Eastern oil.
6: BYU's Wheatley Forum presents the research of leading scholars and experts in current social issues and events. Learn, explore, and discuss the world around us with The Wheatley Forum. Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
1: Good afternoon, I'm Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. President Barack Obama and Mitt Romney both tried to take the day off of campaigning for the 9-11 anniversary, but political messages still came through.
2: At a Pentagon memorial service, the president said America's come a long way since September 11th and the nation
3: is safer. Al-Qaeda's leadership has been devastated and Osama bin Laden will never threaten us again.
2: But speaking to a veterans group in Nevada, Mitt Romney said perils remain. I wish I could say the world is less dangerous now that it's less chaotic. And despite saying the anniversary is not a day for partisanship, Romney said America owes the troops and its allies clarity of purpose and resolve in wielding its military might. Mark Smith at the White House.
1: With elections coming up fast, both houses of Congress have been focusing more and more on veterans' issues, trying to win votes.
2: Democrats and Republicans both view the nation's 21 million veterans as a key voting block, so it's no surprise they're courting them before the votes are cast. Senate Democrats are pushing President Obama's plan for a jobs corps for veterans. The five-year proposal would use a billion dollars to hire vets as police officers and firefighters or to help restore and protect public lands. House Republicans are holding a series of hearings on the Veterans Affairs Department performance on key issues, including efforts to clear the backlog of disability claims. Tim McGuire, Washington.
1: The California slaughterhouse that was the subject of an animal cruelty investigation is getting some of their business back as the U.S. Department of Agriculture is buying meat there once again.
7: The USDA has issued a statement which says Central Valley Meat Company's improved oversight for animal welfare prompted the government to reinstate purchases for federal feeding programs. Officials with the Food Safety and Inspection Service concluded last week that there was no evidence of sick cattle entering the food supply. That's after an undercover video showed workers kicking and shocking down cattle in an attempt to herd them to slaughter. The USDA will conduct quarterly audits at the Hamford Company until it successfully completes forced straight audits. I'm Shelley Adler.
1: More and more US families are cutting off their traditional television service, but that doesn't mean their TV sets are collecting dust.
7: The Nielsen Company says three-quarters of the estimated five million homes that don't get cable, satellite, telephone line, or broadcast signals still have their TVs. Many of them get content through services like Netflix, Apple TV, or DVDs. That's because some people have cut off their service to save money. The number of people with traditional TV service has been declining since 2009, and people are watching less traditional television. But Nielsen says that time is more than made up for through DVR use, Or internet time. I'm Shelley Antler.
1: You're listening to BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. I'm Sam McCall.
0: Welcome back, everybody. To the Matt Townsend Show. We are talking to Dr. David Crandall, Professor of Anthropology. Brigham Young University. He's been there for 17 years, and we're just picking his brains on the importance of, um, of rituals, of traditions, and uh, kind of rites of passage. Uh, as an anthropology professor um, and a student, while he was at Oxford, he lived with uh, a tribe in Africa and has been studying them for 22 years, and uh, it just seems fascinating. He was just telling me some stories. Dr. Crandall, welcome back. Thank you. Appreciate having you here. Now, Tell us a little bit about your, your adopted tribe in Africa.
3: They are a people called the Obahimba. I'm not sure if you saw a film that came out a couple of years ago called Babies or Baby. They were actually featured in, uh, in that film. Did yes. you see all the people you knew? They weren't people we knew. Okay. Uh, but, uh, we... Is
0: it a big tribe? How big of a tribe?
3: There are about 17,000 of them in the northwest corner of Namibia and about half that in the southwest corner of Angola. Wow. So you went there 22
0: years ago Correct. as a student. How right. long were you there the first time? Two years.
3: You spent. Were you married? Yes. You and your wife. Did you have kids then? Uh, we had one child. She was 18 months. And then while we were in Namibia, we had another child. And they – are you serious? I'm serious. What was that like? Talk well, about a rite of passage. Well, she was born in the capital city uh, in a real hospital. Okay. And, and I was thinking that would be – Namibia is a different kind of country. It was a German colony. And then the South Africans invaded during World War One, And it became de facto the fifth province of South Africa. So it has – a fantastic infrastructure. Oh, that's and all of great!
0: That. So, as you as you go visit, you've I guess you have learned a lot of the norms, the mores, the standards, what you do, what you don't do, yes. where you look, where you don't look. Exactly. Tell us a little bit about that. What's I mean, what is that like to learn a whole new culture along with their rites of passage?
3: I suppose it's about like being a child growing up in our culture and learning the hard way about yeah. what to do and what not to do.
0: Like you were talking about where you live, and like when you go back, you take your tents back. And you went for two years the first time, and now every time you go is how
3: long? Uh, usually five or six weeks in the bush. But when we we were adopted by an old headman, a very wealthy, influential man, and so we lived at the edge of his homestead. Uh, When he died, though, and when we come back, we found that if we stay too close to anybody's homestead, then we're accused of showing favoritism. So we stay away from all of the other homesteads, and that seems to work pretty well. It's just you've got to try to stay neutral. That's right.
0: Because I guess they all – and they love you, because I guess, because you're the quirky outsider. Is that what it is? We're
3: the strange people. (laughs) And also they like us because when we leave, we – we leave a lot of the equipment that we brought up—these five-gallon jerry cans for water gathering yeah. and all kinds of things. So they love it because you're just they replenishing do. the community. And I suppose it's something new and different from ordinary life, right?
0: What to, tell us about what you've learned with that? It seems like you're as an outsider looking in. You can really only look at it through your frame of reference. Really, I mean, you're you know, you're you're. Pretty much an academic white bread, you know, mm-hmm. even though you went to Oxford, but you're still looking at it from your paradigm what- well, What are you noticing? What are you learning just about relationships, about families, about rituals
3: well i'm all of us who go uh, we learn, I think about their world, and we can function in it pretty well. We understand mm-hmm. what the expectations are and how we should do this and how we should do that. I wouldn't say that we're really Himba at all, but they, but we understand the world well enough to get along in it quite yeah. uh, without too many disasters. But what I actually study is I'm interested in the ideas that people believe to be true, absolutely true about the nature of life in the world, and I'm looking at how the same set of people over the past 22 years how their understandings of those ideas have changed with their experience oh, in life. Interesting.
0: Oh. Tell us what your learnings and and I guess also tell us how that applies to us. I mean, I think of that. I always think of it as a family, as a father, how we could hand down our learning and you know, change and adapt our thinking as we experience life.
3: Well, one of the things that uh, I have found is that people are often unaware of how much they have a new take on an idea that they may have learned in childhood or as teenagers. Mm -hmm. I can ask them, for instance, what do you think about X? And I can go back in my notes from 22 years and say, well, 22 years ago you told me this. And a man or a woman will say, you know, I can actually recall telling you that, but that's not how I think about it now, and I'm not sure how I changed changed my mind on that. So That's it's, fascinating. It is very interesting to me. And,
0: and how do you – I guess how do you track all that? How do you – I guess
3: – Simply by when I have long conversations, take plenty of notes, so you date say, everything. This is this person at this time and so I have uh, a series of notebooks and I can go back to them. And then do you just keep uh, – you just keep bringing up the same topic?
0: Very often, Yes. How fascinating is that? And do you see – is it – I guess the change though is because they're not even – I guess they're not reaching too far out of their villages, are
3: they? No, but it's it's a change in the way that they understand something. It's like all of us I think even in our society. We don't understand this concept now the way that we did 10 Mm -hmm. or 15 years ago because we have a lot more of life's experience and we have perhaps understood it better than we did earlier on.
0: That really is. I mean, that, and I guess that's that's how we actually progress, advance. Sure. Is that ability to do that to that's understand right. that? What are some of the principles you see that kind of unleash our ability to change our thinking? Like, what what are you seeing? are kind of milestones or pivoting points?
3: Well, I think revisiting old things is always good, and I also suppose. Sort of the, the annual cycle of our own lives. We, we have a calendar year. We have holidays in it. We do particular things at this time of year and we right. do it every year. Yeah. And I think as we uh, participate in traditions, adults and children, we learn more about them or we have different ways of thinking about them as we grow older.
0: Isn't that true? Like I just – when you were mentioning that, I'm thinking of every Christmas. We all gather around. We have – we go to grandma's house. We have dinner. We have a show, a talent show. We have one aunt that always – she only knows one song on the piano, my sister. It's the Nutcracker. Mm -hmm. Matchmaker, matchmaker. That's the only song she knows. And she'll always play it and we all just act like that was amazing. (laughs) <laughs> and yet, every year we all get more kind of like she's crazy, and you know the older she gets, the more crazy she but if she didn't
3: is. do it, you would miss it it's
0: it's interesting, so there's a right isn't it yes isn't that fascinating it, but you're saying that's actually a really good moment to even overtly question how we've changed our learning or growing sure. this time
3: and most rites of passages i've mentioned at least classically thought about. They have some kind of teaching, whether it is direct or indirect. And I think it's interesting how we can reflect back on moments, pivotal moments in our lives or maybe our grandfather or mother or father mm-hmm. or brother or sister did something and we learned from it and how even as an adult we can look back 35, 40, 50 years yeah. and um, see perhaps that what we thought had happened at that moment – is very different from how we now conceive of that moment. Oh, yeah. So that these moments are not frozen in time. Right, they're not pictures. They have this interesting life and they continue on as long as they are in our memory.
0: Well, and it's interesting because then you'll go to a baptism or you'll go to some like religious event and, you know, the older people will give the advice to the younger people. But – I mean, I remember like my baptism. I was wearing a leisure suit. I don't know what you call it. It wasn't a leisure suit, but it was a polyester suit with a polyester shirt, and it was green. That's what I remember. <laughs> and I'm like, "This is weird." I was eight, and this is weird. This is uh, i look weird. Well, now that I am an adult and I look back, it was really weird that just that little outfit <laughs> they had put me sure. in, but. It's the deal. Is is what advice I give people now about baptism? Conceptually, I wasn't even capable
3: of giving. You know, this accurate. reminds me of that little thing I said about the Bemba women looking uh-huh. at this strange image. Yeah, you were wearing something that maybe you weren't supposed to have worn yeah. at a baptism, but it made it that stand out it's, in your that's mind. That's what's in it's my head, indelibly imprinted in there.
0: Isn't that fascinating? And it honestly was probably not even my idea. So it's like my mom handed me. <laughs> that's what you're wearing. And all my other friends were wearing their white shirts or whatever and their little ties and their neat little suits. And I'm thinking I look like John Travolta. <laughs> I was actually <laughs> thinking that back then. But um, it really is. It's it's also interesting I guess as parents how we have this role in handing it down right. and teaching it down and making – and I guess and, – and even lifting them up as they progress through the stages. What, talk more about the role of parents and rights and –
3: Well, in our sort of single-family households, the parents obviously have to take uh, the lead in creating and maintaining traditions. My mother is from Germany and so we always had lots of German traditions which nobody else knew Mm -hmm. about or celebrated. But now when we do things, for instance, on a Christmas Eve, which is a very big thing in Germany and not such a big thing in America, but we do this German-style party – And if we don't have all of the foods out, my children will complain. Why did we not have this? Why are we not doing that? Isn't that interesting? But it is interesting over the course of time and years, they expect a particular pattern. And when there's some upset with the pattern, they recognize it. Yeah, you're messing up our lives here, Dad. That's right. (laughs) That's fascinating. Tell us, um,
0: just as you as a dad and somebody that gets to go and sit amidst amidst another people – and learn, what what do we need to just as humans, just on this great big ball of mud? Nine Eleven, it it kind of ended up in the end. It united us for a while. It also has divided us. What what have you learned just about as an anthropologist about as about humans? What do we need to remember?
3: What I personally think is that human beings anywhere on Earth are essentially alike. Mm. And parents, no matter where they are, their children drive them out of their minds. They're trying to figure out how can I bring this boy or this girl under control? How can I possibly teach these dumb teenagers what they need to know to make a living? All of these sorts of things are so interesting because we would think that maybe in a society, a small uh, herding society in Namibia, life would be easier. But it's no easier.
0: Oh, no. And they still fight with the teenager.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> They're still so reining them in. We can go and talk about our problems. They tell us their problems and they are almost identical.
0: Isn't that so fun? I guess that's anthropology. I mean yes. that's the study of man, right? That's right. And yet we try to – distinguish ours are – well, but ours are in gangs.
3: OK. <laughs> they probably have gangs in Namibia. Well, they have marauding teenagers who need <laughs> yeah. to be brought to heal. Isn't that interesting? And the parents don't quite know how to do that.
0: And I mean really when you think about it, I guess that's all humanity, right? We so, all have the basic needs absolutely. to be loved, to be cared for, watched absolutely. over. And, yet, and, and these rights, religious or not, are um, – they're one way to do it.
3: That's right. They are at least an introduction to what – a society treasures as the most important knowledge that human beings can have. Mm-hmm. And even though we all know when we go through our rites of passage, we may not understand much. But over the years, the meaning of those rites of passage becomes a bit clearer and we see their mm-hmm. importance. So we do want to pass them on. Yeah. One of the things I studied a lot in my program, in a PhD program, is
0: symbolic interaction. So this the concept that it, you can say whatever you want, but the actual symbols are created as we interact together on these symbols. Right. And we keep redefining these symbols as we go through life. That's right. So that's why we
3: display a lot of symbols too. Yeah, it's too, huh? Right.
0: And then we, I guess we still need to constantly be recognizing that the understanding is not just inherent in a symbol.
3: No, and it's largely what we bring to the symbol. Yeah. And so it can change – our understanding of the symbol can change drastically over time.
0: Which is why people could believe in a religion at one time and then kind of evolve away from that. Absolutely. And then even evolve back to it. Exactly. Isn't that fascinating? It but I, is. So it's not the religion or the symbol. It's, it's the interaction of the human, the, the person with that symbol.
3: That's right. We can become disappointed in something and for that reason move away from, from it it's and really perhaps never come back.
0: That's right, and it's it's a it's a powerfully beneficial system. It seems like because it it, we're so it makes us adaptive, so we can kind of keep recalibrating and recreating the sure.
3: stories. I think in most societies, people will say the greatest thing in life is also the worst thing in life, and that is getting along with other human beings. Yeah, it is a torturous thing oh. in all societies, and quite difficult to. Uh, get beyond sometimes. But it is interesting to me that the the people we study, uh, the husbands and wives have their ups and downs. Siblings have their ups and downs. Their world, even though f- from an outsider perspective, it might look very exotic, if we peel it away, it's really very little from uh, different from our own. Isn't that – in a way, that's so comforting. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: Because to know that it, it does come down to something so basic that, you know, just basic human nature, human lives. As we wrap up, Dr. Crandall, one little thing. I just want a little uh, advice then as we – and just give some advice to our listeners out there. Um, what what then is the key, I guess, that you see to, to get into the meaning of other people? So how, how – you get to go sit and see it. How do the rest of us? What would you just suggest the rest of us do, that are here stuck in this this ball of mud, this crazy experience in the United States? What should we do a little bit
3: more of? I would say you should go and visit your neighbors and find out about their lives and what they're thinking and what they've done and their ups and downs. Should we treat them like they're from Namibia? Absolutely, and, and
0: like learn and study. And there sure. really is, I guess. Boy, if I could understand their story better, I'd hear that it's a lot like my story. Exactly. That's so powerful. So when are you going again? again? Uh, 2014. Wow. And you're going to be taking grand, or uh, son-in-laws potentially? In. Yes. And I
3: usually bring students with me. Do you really?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, good luck to you, Dr. David Crandall, professor of anthropology at Brigham Young University. Uh, On his way again, I guess, in 2014 to Africa. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Appreciate you being here. And just we're learning. I mean, to me, seriously, we're so much alike. That which is most personal is most universal. We're all just a bunch of humans trying to survive. And uh, on September 11th, we're all just a bunch of humans. Uh, Let's care for each other. Let's try to understand each other a little bit better. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back after this break right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
4: Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. A new eye on the sky sees the air in 3D. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories behind the ideas that shape our future.
5: Pilots depend on airport weather reports. But for 75 years, the best data they could get were glimpses from weather balloon launches, like snapshots of the weather at one fixed time of the day. Thanks to an improved microwave radiometer by Radiometrics Corporation, instead of those snapshots, scientists now have the equivalent of live 3D video of what's happening in the atmosphere out to 30 miles away. Radiometrics says the microwave radiometer can see icing conditions, measure temperatures, humidity, precipitation, and winds at high altitudes, all from the ground. Developed from circuitry originally used for cell phones and hooked to the internet for fast reporting, the radiometer detects the faint energy, only a trillionth of a watt emitted from atmospheric water vapor and oxygen molecules in motion. The unit is undergoing field tests and is already paying off from perfecting local weather forecasts for the last Olympic Games to gathering new data about cloud formation for better global climate models, even enabling utilities to predict and anticipate load changes due to changing weather conditions. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino.
4: Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. BYU Radio is your home for BYU football coverage. And after each week's game, break down the action with Coach
2: Hall and Greg Rubel.
3: I just simply believe, even though our execution outmatched our opponent, I also think our competitive will and resiliency. We were at a different place as a team and a program
2: than our opponent, and I think that ultimately overwhelmed or was one of the main reasons
4: that we had a chance to to play better from beginning to end.
2: Don't miss BYU football with head coach Bronco Mendenhall live this Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern time here on the home of Cougar Sports, Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back everybody to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about uh, rites of passage and just the impact of um, these these kind of pivotal moments in our life. we are also been uh, talking to Dr. David Crandall, uh, anthropology professor from Brigham Young University, about the fact that, you know, we're all pretty much the same. Doesn't matter where you go, we're all trying to fight the same battle the same way. And so... I hope you've been feeling uh, a little bit of, of, uh, of an uplift there. You know, as we went through 9-11, tons to learn there. And what 9-11 meant to us 11 years ago is different than what it will mean to us today. And uh, that's, I guess, one of the, the things Dr. Crandall's been talking about. is just as we go through this, we continue to heal. And now we've also talked about other rites of passage, getting your driver's license. But growing up— We experienced these these rites of passage, and our producer, Madison, tells us of her most recent experience.
6: I have officially been in college for two weeks. I'm totally loving it, but getting here was not so easy. The tough part was that I moved out all by myself. Now, as you're hearing this, I am sure some listeners are thinking, "Uh uh-huh, right. I'm sure your parents or family helped out at least a little bit. Well, I'm here to tell you, nope. I had everything packed up a full week before I had to. I had another job where I had to be out of state that entire week, and I was so ready to be gone when I got back that I wanted nothing to stand in my way. When I left my room, everything was neatly in boxes and ready to go. I got back that Friday morning, and truthfully, it felt a little good to walk into my pleasant, air-conditioned home. But at the same time, I was ready to strike out on my own. I set my luggage down and poked my head into the family room, saying, "'Well, Mom and Dad, I'm ready to move out.'" Now I started to imagine how easy this was going to be. The image that had flashed to my mind was when my older sister had moved out. It was an entire family affair. We were instructed to help her pack, bring the things to the van, then we all rode with the stuff, helped her move in, and saw her new place. But right then, my parents just continued to sit there and said, "'Okay, honey, not quite what I was expecting.' Well, I just took a look at myself and went, "'Well, okay.' I promptly went to my room and started lugging all my boxes up and out of the basement into the van. After about half an hour, I took one last look at my room to make sure I had everything, and I felt a sense of accomplishment. Then I went to tell my parents, "'Okay, Mom Dad.' I'm ready to go now. They just said, okay. I was half expecting them to come along with me and help me move in. But obviously, my expectations for my parents was a little too high. I guess I could have understood if, let's say, I was a fifth out of eight children to move out... And they were just used to it. But hello? I am the second in a family of four. Not that many kids, not someone to get lost in the shuffle, and I felt like this should have been a bigger deal for them than it was. But I just said to myself, um, c'est la vie, and went on. I got the keys to the van and started my way to my new apartment. Along the way, I realized that I did not have a bank account or anything to buy any necessities. I had previously been researching banks, so I stopped at the one that I had liked, signed up for a checking and savings account, and after about an hour, I came out with my brand new debit card. I went to a grocery store to buy food that I would need so I could live for the next week or two, and that was my last stop. I had come to my new apartment. I proceeded to check in, found my room, and then slowly but surely, I unloaded and put all of my things away. When I was done, I stopped by the gas station to fill up the car with the amount of gas that I had used and came back to my house. I parked the car, gave the keys to my parents, who were not at the dinner table, and told them that I was about to leave. Now, this is where the caring parent part comes in, so they kissed and hugged me goodbye, and I got my bike and went to my new apartment. Some people might think of this as a laissez-faire parenting style, but trust me, my parents have been anything but that. They've always been great, supportive, and authoritative parents intent on making sure their children would be ready for independence. Well, for this little girl who has been doing the dishes since she was 7, laundry since she was 8, and held a job since she was 13, they accomplished their goal. I interpreted their approach to my moving out as a way to strike out on my own and start a whole new life for myself. Now, while my sore muscles might have liked some help... I felt like I had accomplished something by doing all this by myself. This was my most notable rite of passage.
0: Oh, Madison, Madison, Madison,
1: Madison,
0: Madison. Um, Okay, so we just learned from Dr. Crandall that a rite of passage is telling you how um, or what to expect and prepare you for the future. So your parents intentionally abandoned you. Because your life is going to be nothing but abandonment. And you're going to be doing everything yourself. Oh, I love it. Welcome to college. Parents, good work out there. That's it. I think if we would all unify and abandon our children when they go to college, we could change the world. And at least they would put the toilet paper on the toilet paper roll. Um, Oh, that's so fun. That's good. See, that means I blew it with my daughter because we actually brought her down. But we did that because she wouldn't come otherwise. (laughs) So we had to bring her down. And we actually slowed down to about three miles an hour and threw her out of the car and all of her stuff. Oh, it's so interesting. The rites of passage, Have you gone through them in your life, whether it's a Big Mac, whether it's wearing my funny clothes at my baptism, (laughs) whatever it was, we've all been through that crazy moment. And we've also been through 9-11 together. And I guess one of the keys to 9-11 is I, I think we're learning we can handle this. We can take it, Uh, just as Madison learned from her parents' neglect. Uh, They're probably listening, and they're going to feel so bad. But just as she learned... You, We all have learned. 9-11, it was tough, and we've made it, and we can be better as a culture, as a group. So please, will you start watching out for each other? Also, can you just take some of the advice of Dr. Crandall, and let's just start trying to understand that what the symbols of life mean to everyone else. Let's try to understand that even though we may not come from the same religious or the same faith backgrounds, we can still appreciate what they mean to everyone else. And the same thing with parties of, of Republican or Democrat, our race, our ethnicity, all of these different things we can understand and love each other even though we are so different. Thanks for listening to the show, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow Tomorrow with more ideas right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.